only the zebra thinks relaxed lions are never a problem. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Nick DeMarco. Nick DeMarco is a Yoakum Strength Podcast living legend as he was the number one overall listened to guest of the season two. And he just has a vast, and I mean vast, array of knowledge. Today, Coach takes us down the rabbit holes of how he has been navigating the COVID era of sports performance, how he goes about building his in-season plan and his buildup of practices and the kind of flow of practices throughout the week for his team, which I think is one of the most valuable pieces of information that this podcast has. If you guys take anything away from any of these podcasts, his little five-minute rant on this was almost priceless. It It was really phenomenal. I took a bunch of notes on that. And he ends the podcast talking about athlete scores and how they are going about measuring the things that they do in the weight room and creating an athlete score and comparing that to the game and what allows them to do conversation wise and what it allows them to do with the athlete and what they're spending their time on, keeping the goal to goal and really moving their program and their athletes forward. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Oakham Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Oakham Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, You'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. As always, I really want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast, all the sharing that you guys do, all the comments that you guys send me, all the questions that you guys have really keeps fueling everything that we're doing here. Uh, It would be nothing without you guys listening. I get a lot from this podcast personally, just listening and getting to talk to great minds in the field like Coach DeMarco. But you guys, your guys' support, your guys' feedback on this podcast has really been phenomenal, and I can't thank you guys enough. Thank you guys for listening. Marcus, hit that intro music. Boom. Let's do it. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is 2.0. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about it. Yeah, last uh, you were the number one guest of last podcast. You were the you were the big time show. You got all the shout outs from that. How does that feel? Uh, the person curating the podcast is uh, the reason it goes well. So I guess you ask good questions and uh, pivoted off of them well. And producer Marcus makes us sound both smart. He, he cleans everything <laughs> for us and eliminates any of our pauses. So that's good. We talked a little bit right before we started recording about what this kind of past year has looked like, but I'm interested in what that has looked like for you. Uh, you. You mentioned that it hasn't been a ton of off seasons. You mentioned that there's been some things that you feel like you and everyone around the nation has missed out on and how it kind of reaffirms what 
and how important some of the stuff that we do is in the weight room with our guys or on the field in the sports performance sector. Can you kind of talk about what the past year has looked like with your teams and some of the eye openers that has been for you? Yeah, great question. So um, within the past year, you know, if we go based off the last 12 months, so last March when everything shut down to this point in time, football, the sport I work the most with has actually probably trained more than a lot of other teams. And we still just haven't trained very much. So from March all the way through May, we were completely shut down. In June, we only had about 12 guys on campus who were training. Uh, football was the only sport at that time and a few basketball athletes, kind of our higher risk academic kids and um, some people who just needed to be on campus. It was better for them to be here, but super low. And it was one per rack. Everything was spaced, had to be extremely cautious the entire time. And they're coming off a huge break. So it was all rather cautious training anyway. Uh, and then we get into July. We were supposed to start after that July 4th break. It got delayed a week because as soon as we got back, there was a few positives and that kind of trickled and delayed things. So we ended up having two weeks. And at that point, we thought we were still playing a fall season. We were going to have our two weeks of training and then that like six week modified prep that the NCAA had mandated. And so we're those two weeks, we were really just hammering a lot of on-field work. We didn't hardly touch the weight room at all. I think guys lifted twice a week just to try and get some base levels of strength back. Uh, but our biggest emphasis was on capacity and making sure guys could be safe if we had to play or as safe as possible. Obviously, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So we, we hadn't had a huge uh, training base building up to it. So we were just doing anything we could to get their workloads up, kind of based off some of that Tim Gabbett stuff. And once the season got shut down at some point in August, we went into a five-week block that was uninterrupted training. It was great. Really, our focus was – Okay, we're not playing until the spring. We're going to have a fall practice. It's just kind of a reverse season. And so we were going to treat it like an early off season. And within that five weeks, we had some great, great results. Guys had their speed numbers back up. A lot of their strength numbers were the same. Uh, but we weren't allowed to do any open agility stuff because we were still masked in distance. We weren't doing any of our grappling stuff. And just overall, our work capacity was definitely the furthest behind. Like, it's interesting how quick you know, you look at those training residuals and it's like, oh, aerobic capacity lasts the longest and speed lasts the shortest. And I think those kind of get misinterpreted anyway. That's just for a vertical integration or block periodization approach, how often you should kind of keep those things in the program and, and switch your emphasis, in my opinion. But the speed stuff actually comes back quicker, I've noticed, than a lot of the aerobic stuff. Because if, if guys go home, odds are they might hop out and hit a few sprints. Odds are they're not going to go out and rip off some tempo runs or gritty conditioning. Um, so the things we were missing out on the most were just uh, the overall base. And I do really believe in uh, the Alvermeel hierarchy of like work capacity being at the base function of, of need. And I think we we're really missing that at that point. And that's was still a focus, but we obviously they're football players. So we want them to be strong. We want them to be resilient and we want them to move fast. So you're trying to catch a lot of, things at once but we had a five-week block that was really good we even had quite a few guys hitting prs uh, on their fly 10 stuff like that so it was pretty interesting and then we got shut down again we ended up shut down for four months because we had a little bit of an outbreak campus-wide uh, within athletics and just the general population on campus because we were one of the few schools that actually had a full fall semester of online or in-person learning and uh when we came back, we had our fall practice block. So we had like one week where we kind of prepped them in the weight room and we were incredibly cautious. Our head coaches did a good job 
across all of our teams because uh, every team was practicing in that November block of constraining their practices and, and manipulating their volumes, intensity, and density of practice well to stay relatively healthy. But we didn't get a huge training emphasis from our side. And then you go into December because as soon as November uh, Thanksgiving break happened, that's when everyone went home and finals were online just because they didn't want people traveling and, and coming back with all the COVID implications. And so they were gone that whole month of December, gone the first week of January. And then we came back the second week of January. We had, I think, eight training sessions. And then we started camp for football. And some of our teams even started a little bit faster. It was like four training sessions. And then they popped in and started practicing. And um, same thing. So it's kind of an uphill battle where you look at the last year, there's basically been no preparation, yet we're still uh, having to play the exact same game. So it's an interesting year. Um, I think you had touched on like what are the things that were glaring to me was the work capacity like I touched on um, and just the need for, you know, I've been a pretty heavy advocate of like open agility work and making sure that's a staple in a program year round. And I think a lot of other places, like some coaches I've had conversations with have seen more issues with like, for us, it's just been like ankle strength. We've had a lot more high ankles or just ankle incidents of injury. Um, just across the NFL and major college football, there's been a lot more ACLs in the fall, which it's lower preparation, but it's also that perception action. If you're in really poor positions because you haven't been accustomed to doing it, you're going to be at a higher risk of injury. So that's really just kind of reinforced the need for an open environment. Because if you do nothing open, you're just doing your change of direction work, some strength work, everyone's space, everyone's distance, and you come back and you play a chaotic game, I think you're going to see some glaring weaknesses and that's going to carry over into, you know, obviously you can't predict injury, you can't prevent injury, but you can mitigate the risk. And in the case of not doing open agility work, I think you increase the risk of injury potential. Um, so those are a few things that have really stuck out to me. For sure. With that, because uh, we talked about, and there's a lot of schools getting back into it. I think you guys are actually ahead of most of the schools that I know, at least in our area, where you guys have actually played four games. Uh, whereas a lot of the Midwest schools are kind of just starting up right now. Yeah. Coaches that are just starting up, would you say the biggest thing they can do then is to work on that practice plan itself to really keep the volumes low and almost treat that practice as physical prep for the first couple of times while we're adding in tactical and technical stuff? How would you approach it for a school that's just starting up and is in the same situation most people are where they haven't had a ton of buildup, hadn't had a ton of that like grappling and the physical contact based stuff, haven't had a ton of perception reaction type stuff, but they still have to play a season in let's say a month. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing, any point really, even if you've had a great training block, a really poor practice plan can wipe that great training out pretty quick. Um, so I think this has really been a good educational experience for a lot of coaches on just how important that is. But especially coming back right now when you're not going to have time to prepare, you haven't had the same preparation that you've had before. You've got to be smarter than ever. And the way that you control practice and hopefully have somewhat of a high-low fashion in place. And I think that's definitely the biggest thing you can do right away. And the best way to prepare for your sport, especially on short notice, is to play the sport. Um, and increase the intensity as you go. So we've had a lot more of like step through focus days where we might have a high practice where we're getting our high intensity work. And then the next day it's followed with, we want a complete reduction of sprint distance. Cause if they're sprinting, if they're in truly open environments, hard change of direction, 
every single day, they're not going to be able to tolerate that too much, too fast. You're going to have a lot of injuries. Um, so early in camp, especially it'd be like a high day with some sprint distance, you know, playing some football and I'll go back to, we kind of progress the scenario. So we, at first we're doing nothing full speed. It was all kind of lower intensity work. We would run through plays, stuff like that in our walkthrough as a team. And then did a lot of individual work to build up that like special prep period. And within our team settings, it was all just walkthroughs for those first like two weeks. I think that was NCA mandated anyway. Uh, and then from there, it went into, okay, let's do full speed one-on-one in the red zone. So constrain the space a little bit. You're not going to have as much hamstring incidents. It just lowers the speed overall from that agility standpoint too of reacting. Then we went one-on-one in an open field. Then we went small-sided games, like a seven-on-seven scenario, our one-on-one pass rush, inside run, things like that, in a shorter area, then went to full area, and then we went team. I I don't think we got the team until like three and a half weeks in. Um, So it was well-progressed, and you could still get a ton of the things done that you need to because, especially for football, tactically, most of your mistakes happen pre-snap. If you're lined up and you know your assignment, you just have to be physically ready. And then hopefully you're a skilled enough athlete to make those decisions, but you're able to still get a ton of work done without all of the high intensity work. And it keeps guys healthier throughout that phase. So, I mean, a guy practices really hard for a week and misses three weeks versus if you can keep most of your guys healthy, you're going to get a lot more quality work done throughout that time. So uh, I, I thought that went well, but then within our practices, we would have that kind of high-low model of one day. It was higher intensities. We're hitting our open field stuff. When we got into full team, it was, you know, we had our seven-on-seven periods. We had one-on-one deep ball drill maybe and full-speed 11-on-11 football. But then the next day, we wouldn't come back with another full-speed practice, um, which I think should be the norm every year. Uh, But it worked out this year was the, the first year we fully got that going. And so it would be step through. For everything so it might be full speed pre-snap wide receivers going in motion he comes across full speed like he's getting the jet sweep but as soon as the ball snaps everyone just takes one step kind of dictates where they would be going you see the play you see if they knew their assignment done and their indie was kind of an extensive teaching pace i think you could get a lot more tactical and technical skill work done on those days to a little slower pace and then carry it over the next day um, and it was a good chance to clean up mistakes or build on the next day too at a little bit lower tempo. And then the first week we went high, low, off, high, low, off. And then the next week we ended up going a low, high, low, off, low, high, low, off. So we were trying to increase the density of our practices throughout the week as well. And the overall volume and intensity, not just come out week one and, Hey, you get to practice six days. You have one mandatory day off. Let's use all of it. Um, now, all six days that you could use, there was something going on, whether that was meetings or just film work, whatever it may be. But we try and keep our high days high and our low days lower. Uh, I think that was helpful. Although, as we've gotten into it, I do think the agility stuff has been a big deal. Like we've had more ankle foot issues than we've we've ever had, um, and I think a lot of that has been in those kind of open environments and and just good strength program is going to focus on ankle strength, foot strength, all the way up the chain. Um, so the less training you've had, probably the more intensive injury. I think that's something that a lot of people are battling currently. 
Oh, that rant right there is why you're the number one listen to guest coach. That was <laughs> that moneymaker. Oh my God. That was, that's phenomenal. That, that setup for a practice. That is beautiful. I freaking, I love that setup. How, how does that look when you have a game? Let's say you have a game on Saturday. Does that change anything just in the coach's head of now? It's like, Oh, there, there's the game. We don't want to have a low day because of the stress. Like how are you guys approaching that on an actual game week and not so much a, uh, just a practice week? Yeah, I think that's where we probably made the most progress for sure. Um, I think the first, we had a really good buildup. And then as you get going, it's not insecurity by any means on, on the standpoint of a coach. It's just like you're scared you're not prepared enough. Like you never feel quite prepared enough for the first game. You always want to do a little bit more. So we, we really practiced similar to the way we did the year prior. I think the first week or two. And then finally got in the groove of, okay, we need to keep these guys as fresh as we can. So what we've done is like Sunday guys come in and they hit a lift. And for me, that's more of a resilience, uh, hit all of our accessory work. I would call it like a structural emphasis. So it's not truly low, but it's definitely not high from like a nervous system standpoint. It's just stuff that they might have soreness from. Cause I know that's at noon on Sunday, they get the rest of the day off. It gets some blood flow going. We get all the, that nobody really wants to hit done on that day and you get monday off we come back tuesday tuesday we'll have our higher intensity from a neural standpoint lift and so that might include um some low low volume plyometrics uh more of our high intensity stuff whether it's trap bar deadlift if it's a bench press front squat for some of our foundation guys split squats for those guys whatever it may be it's anything that's really high intent could be high velocity, could be uh, slower, just heavier weights. It depends um, what tier of training they're in and what week it is, what our emphasis is, but it's always our higher neural day. So Sunday, structural, Tuesday, neural. Our practice on Tuesday, coming off of Monday off, coming off a game on Saturday, is a little bit lower volume, and it's a lower intensity. So we've gone towards uh, the past few weeks especially, there'll be – one full speed scout period, like a seven on seven period, typically red zones. So we can limit that distance a little bit and then a step through period and then a step through period. So that way, especially like if a guy comes out of the game banged up or something like that, he can do a big majority of practice on Tuesday and then get the guys back Wednesday is our higher intensity day. So it's, it's pretty low, um, especially from a football practice standpoint on Tuesday. Wednesday, we'll do like potentially a one-on-one deep ball drill. We'll have uh, our indie stuff is all, you know, fuller speed stuff. We'll have a team like open field kind of first, second down. Your open field seven on seven. Your team stuff is full speed. So Wednesday is the work day where you get a little bit more done. And then Thursday, we really back off. So the goal is to try and get no high speed distance on that day. Keep everything in, in small spaces, step through tempos. Nobody's sprinting full speed. Let guys kind of recover. Friday is a walkthrough. We hit some very, very low volume uh, explosive stuff potentially in the weight room, depending on the week and where guys are at. And then we hit uh, mobility and just like activation type stuff in the weight room on Friday right before they go out to the walkthrough. Saturday we play. Um, and this year it's been a little bit unique because if we have a road game, we travel the day of typically we're in a hotel and you're sleeping, you're comfortable, you go out and play versus we had like a two and a half hour drive, eat at a place close to the stadium, 
go over to the stadium, play, and then come back that day, um, which is a lot different. And guys are a little bit stiffer and just changes some things up overall. Uh, but that layout seems to have been pretty effective in our volumes and total work is really not a ton different from the total work of a typical practice week. I think it's just manipulated a little bit better to fit uh, that recovery need for Saturday. And I also think people don't take into account the game. Like we've had guys with 400, 500 yards of high speed distance in a game. That's a massive training session. Uh, that counts. Like, it's not like, oh, that was the game. We got to get our work done in practice. Like, no, that was still a huge, huge physical toll. Uh, and that's where they're getting their high speed distance. Wednesday, they're getting some. So you're getting two exposures to really high intensity work. And then the rest of the time, it's trying to piece together, become a better football player, technically, tactically, and know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Last, so I'm going to keep going into this in-season stuff because last time you and I talked, it was all off-season. How does that look with the young guys, the guys that aren't playing? Are you trying to manipulate their volume either in the weight room or on the field because they're not getting that second high day when it's game day and just because you, you have some space to space to kind of go with them because they're not going to start on Saturday? Yeah, so for them on Sundays, we still hit a big majority of their resilience stuff. Uh, that's still kind of their emphasis is structural, but beforehand we hit plyometrics and we hit speed work. So they're getting that high intensity effort because they had Saturday off Friday was a walkthrough. They should be pretty fresh and their next really high intensity day. is not going to be till Wednesday. Um, and some high intensity work on Tuesday. So they'll get a little bit extra on that side, just because I think they need two exposures to some higher intensity speed work, especially. And then they, yeah, typically you just don't get a ton of fly metric work in season. You don't need it. That bucket's already pretty full, but for our young guys, it's really helpful to get that work in. Um, so they do that on Sunday. The lift remains pretty similar. We're hitting a lot of our things like that. I like Iman Jumanovich's agile periodization of uh, Nassim Taleb's like kind of barbell strategy. Minimal, minimal viable performance, like minimize your downside. So we're going to hit our posterior shoulder. We're going to hit ankle, quad, hip, like all of our isolated categories, abduction, abduction, our hinging, whatever it is that the minimum viable thing, like, Hey, if I had one day to train, what are the things I need to do to stay healthy? That's what Sunday is to me. And then Tuesday is that maximize your upside. We want to increase our outputs. We want to increase strength, whatever that may be on that day. And then with our group, who's not playing Wednesday, we get one extra day. And that's typically because they're mostly guys that need to put on some size keep their body comp, things like that. It's a little bit higher volume rep for them. So if it was, um, I'm not a, a huge Louis Simmons guy by any means, but your dynamic effort, uh, repetition method, that would be kind of that day's focus is a repetition method day where it's higher volumes, it's low intensity work, but we just want to pack on some muscle. With, with this setup now, because I think this is for many coaches going to be it's kind of the new wave of practices, I would say. What has been the results for you, either anecdotally or if you have any GPS, stuff like that? What has been the results listening to the players, listening to the, the actual sport coaches of switching over to a practice that seems to fit the central nervous system a little bit better rather than just kind of sending them into four practices a week of 24 periods and then going into a game? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely been better. Uh, from the player standpoint, they feel fresher. That's for sure. Um, just anecdotally having conversations with them, watching them, um, being able to hit high speeds. Like if you are hitting good speeds on Wednesday, you know, you probably did a good job Sunday to Tuesday. 
if you're hitting high speeds on Saturday, that's not necessarily indicative of you played a good game because if, if you play really good defensively, hopefully you're not chasing guys down from behind. Um, but if they're hitting really high intensity efforts, they're able to sustain those things. I think that shows that you've, you've done the right things leading up to it, especially with how little prep we've had. And really at first, like when we started doing this in camp, I think it's hard for people to get their heads around, but once you start doing it, you realize, holy cow, we got a lot of productive stuff done without high intensity effort every single day of practice, every single period. Um, so I think it's overall something that will continue going forward with a lot of teams, just because I think it's, there, there's definitely some better buy-in once you do a low intensity practice and you watch the film and, and people improve from it and you realize it was still valuable without being hundred percent effort for every drill. And I think you, you, you mentioned it earlier and I don't know if insecurity is the right word. Like you mentioned, like, I'm not sure if that's, but it, it's, it's fighting that a little bit, like being all right with not having to do everything uh, and feeling like you said, like almost accepting the fact that you're never going to be comfortable with being prepared. Like that's, that's the whole point. That's why football is such a, a great sport for so many people is because you, you always go into that game. doesn't matter who you're playing with a little bit of that jitters. And I think taking that step back, like you mentioned and understanding and viewing, like you don't have to do something at every moment of every second, high intensity, go, 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 rah, rah, rah. Because even if you do that, you're not going to be prepared. You're not going to feel prepared. And now you're also going to physically run those guys down. Yeah. And it's the same thing for the performance coach too. I mean, you always feel like, holy shit, for football, like you have to check every box. Like there's so many things you're worried about a guy from an injury standpoint. There's so many things they're asked to do. Like, okay, we need this guy to be strong at the point of attack. We also need him to be fast and cover the running back out of the backfield. We need him to run down on kickoffs. So he's getting really long distance runs. Like there's so many things that a football player is asked to do, even offensive linemen, like whether it's a, a pull, pass block, run block. There's so much nuance to the game and each position that you never feel like you've hit everything adequately. Like you're chasing so many different hats for us. Like I'd love to be Tony Hollers, you know, Hey, uh, essentialism. It's like the one arrow. That's just not the reality in football. There's a million arrows pointing off. If all you have to focus on is getting faster for 60 meters, it's a little bit more singular approach versus you never feel completely comfortable in your preparation, obviously, but it does help having some things to quantify like GPS wise. When you look at a game, versus practice they're so dissimilar like a lot of teams you could prep well and then they go practice for six weeks and uh you know i think Kier's talked about this a lot and other people have like if they practice for six weeks and they come out like oh we're not conditioned enough that's really on the sport coach whatever sport it is because your practice is what has prepared them that last six weeks not what they conditioned in the summer and so if you look at football from a volume intensity density the volume of a game is relatively high. I've seen a lot of practices with more volume than a game. The intensity is extremely high because it's max effort, pretty decent recovery. And the density is really low because if I'm a defensive player and I play six snaps, the average length of a drive, eight to 12 times, and you play a total of, say, 60 snaps over three hours, there's a lot of time where you're sitting on the bench looking at the whiteboard, making adjustments, sitting in the locker room at halftime, like the work is so spread out and you can't perfectly replicate that at practice. Nobody's saying, Hey, let's go out and practice for three hours, but you do need to have exposures to that. Like in our camp leading up to it, you know, you have a scrimmage where 
hey, our workloads are about 80% of the game. And the next week, you crank it up a little bit and you get similar workloads without quite as much contact, just because you don't have a ton of injuries leading up to the season, obviously. But you match the demands of the game a little bit more accurately. First, you can't practice like a game every single day because you just have to accomplish a lot of work. Like if you want to cover multiple scenarios, yeah, there's a time where you have to run six plays, the twos run six, and then you're right back up. You're not going to get the exact same breaks. I do think there's a little too much, like I'll jog every drill is fast, 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 fast. And you're out there for two hours and you end up with 30% more volume than any game. It's not necessarily preparing you for a game effectively. So trying to match kind of what those things are. And I think making it as simple as you can, because not everyone's going to understand what's sprint distance, what's player load, what's the IMAs or XLs, D cells, whatever that GPS company is calling it. But everyone can understand, okay, this is our really high intensity efforts. This is the total work done. And this is our total work per minute. Throw that on a graph and compare day to day. Look at a game to a practice. Look at a Tuesday to a Tuesday, Wednesday to a Wednesday, week to week. And you can make meaningful changes because you can see the full picture of what's happening uh, a little bit clearer. And something that I always love, like when you talk about something, even on the last podcast, it's always like you're always keeping the goal, the goal. Like it is always about creating better football players, creating better scores, creating better defenders, creating better tacklers, catchers, passers, whatever it is, rather than creating a better power lifter, creating a somebody that's better at a squat because you know it's going to get you a pat on the back, but it's always keeping the goal, the goal. Now, I know you haven't, you didn't really get to do that off season, but when you are approaching that off season with a player, and you're, you're trying to keep that goal to goal. You're trying to make them a, a better football player holistically. How are you approaching that? Because I know I loved your last two posts. You, you had one about tackle prep stuff and how you're breaking. You're, you're coming from the most far away portion of a tackle position to the closest that you can get in the weight room to the actual field and how you're progressing those type of stuff. You mentioned in one of your last posts talking about how it's like the zero back squat because the back squat like it, it's such an egotistical thing of like, I can show my clients getting better at their back squat. And again, it, it doesn't get them better at football. Like, is that our goal? And you, you approach it in, in quotes, like a different way than most people, because you are keeping the goal to goal. What does that look like for you when you're working with your athletes? Yeah. So, uh, starting with the, the first one, you mentioned the tackle torso prep. That's kind of stolen from Andy Ryland, who you've already had on. Uh, and he's been on quite a few podcasts. He's incredibly smart with anything like football contact prep. We've taken a lot of things from him. But when talking with him, it was kind of the analogy of like, if you swing an axe and it's got the sharpest blade in the world, like the old Abe Lincoln, four hours sharpening my axe, uh, but I have a PVC pipe to swing it with, that's your torso to me. The axe is, you know, your point of contact, the shoulder. And the person swinging it is the amount of power that they can generate. Strongest person in the world, you've got uh, the mountain swinging the sharpest axe on a PVC pipe. It would take a lot of things going well to actually make good contact. And you see the same things in tackle where strong, powerful guy, he can do a power press, he can do an ab wheel, whatever. But when he goes to make contact, he reshapes poorly. Like that's Andy Ryland's term of like the ability to be able to brace when you make contact and readjust and continue driving force through a guy. I think that's more of a torso leak to me. So instead of just sharpening your axe and making a guy more powerful through the hip, lower body, et cetera, you can have a huge squatter with a sturdy enough shoulder to take on a tackle. But if you're leaking through that midsection for whatever reason, I think that is a, a key area for 
guys not being able to tackle and take on a guy squarely. So especially when we haven't been able to do as much contact prep and even a typical offseason, we would do it where like it's kind of a searcher position, getting a split squat, what looks like. I'm not huge on like complete specificity where we're just trying to replicate a movement, but it's replicating the principle of stand up, iso hold. You have to learn to brace and be really, really strong in that position. And it's just training your torso the same way or in a very similar way that you would have to in a tackle situation. Uh, and then we make those movements more dynamic. We'll get into partner lifts with somebody, shoulder battles, hip battles, where it's one-on-one. We didn't get to do as much of that this year. I, I think that stuff is very helpful. Um, but I love the bonder check idea of like GPE all the way up to your SDE. Um, and in the weight room, that's kind of hard to replicate, but some of those things might be on field. But going through that full progression of starting general, going to specific. So just working from principles rather than some random progression. Uh, and then for the second part, I just think that that whole post was geared towards like principles are greater than methods. A lot of people are, you know, we clean because this study in 1978 said, if you clean, uh, you get a 3% gain in sedentary males and power, whatever you want. Uh, you can come up with any study and it's going to show you some sort of progress. Most likely if you're doing a clean or a back squat, it's, are you actually training it or are you just expressing power? Like if you're sprinting and you're jumping and you're doing all these other things, nobody actually knows that the clean is what made the vertical jump up. Like there's a lot of things working together. People who have really high verticals and really high relative power, if they can clean with good technical movement, they're probably the highest cleaners. If you are really, really unexplosive, you're never going to be a great cleaner even if you have great technique, the back squat, I just think it's a low return movement. And if you're evaluating anything, it's return on investment. I can put a hundred thousand dollars in a savings account and get a 0.001% return, or I can put it in an index fund and get a 9% return. Just because the savings account is making me money doesn't mean it is the best return on investment. So to me, every time you pick an exercise, it's the same thing. Can a back squat work effectively? Yes. Can a front squat work effectively? Yes. It's putting all the pieces together to get the best return you possibly can. And to me, I think the clean is a complete waste of time. And just from like the total session time allotted towards it, I'd rather spend an extra 30 minutes on the field with full recovery in between our sprints or hitting our extensive, intensive, true plyometric work on the field. Just actual strength work in the weight room, eliminate that We'll get into some loaded jumps, stuff like that. But everyone's like, oh, well, what do you replace it clean with? It's not about replacing it. It's just what are we trying to accomplish? Increasing power. I think I can do that in a lot of different ways that's more specific to the field and a better use of our total eight-hour time commitment throughout the week. And the back squat, some people really like it. I just think, you know, we start our athletes with front squat. I don't think there's anything wrong with squatting. There's a lot of people who back squat and clean and have great programs like Brett Hoofit, uh, Incarnate Word. Uh, FAU has done a good job. I like Texas Tech when I see them clean in front squat and uh, UNC with Brian Hess have done a good job. A lot of places, the University of Iowa has done a good job and they use those movements. They still get results, but a lot of places they talk up, oh, we clean, we back squat and they'll post a video of a guy back squatting 500 pounds, but they don't share any results from the speed work, the vertical jumps. Like you're not seeing those same increases in those things. I think if you, you can show, hey, our guys are getting faster, they're moving more efficiently. They can jump higher. And guess what? They're still getting stronger. 
because getting stronger is also a byproduct of getting faster and more powerful. Like if you can increase your rate coding, it's probably going to make you a little bit stronger. Be a little bit stronger, it could increase your speed and, and power as well. It all works together. It's not this like linear, like, oh, we back squatted and this happens. Like everything works together holistically. So just trying to come up with the best plan possible for the best return with the least risk. And to me, the back squat is just not something I would use. And the clean at this point isn't something I would use. I think it's more of an expression of force than a good training modality. I love that. Uh, it's something I, I want to branch off with a little bit. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on it too, because something I've just kind of been experimenting with is you talk about the little, like the key metrics, uh, the KPIs, whatever you want to call it, of is your program working? Something we've been doing with our QBs recently has been like measuring a lot of their throws. So like we'll do either weighted baseball throws, um, football throws, different variations, anything. Like I, I look at it as like, I want to give them uh, holistically give our football coaches holistically a better thrower uh, of anything. Uh, he has more options to throw in different spots because his arm is bigger uh, in some of these things. So some of the thoughts that I'm working out and we've been measuring some of the throws and what you see is again, they, they haven't done a ton of back squats. Uh, we've done a lot of rotational stuff, a lot of single leg stuff. And like our QB one increased his, uh, his football throw and his baseball, his baseball throw was like eight miles an hour more. And his football throw was like seven miles an hour more. And we continue to talk to him as like, just cause you throw harder or faster or longer, doesn't mean you're ever going to be a bad quarterback, like that or a good quarterback. That's never going to make a bad quarterback, a good quarterback. But my goal is to give that quarterback a couple more options on the field. Hopefully he can throw to a spot that he didn't think he could throw to before. But to me, something like that is telling me I'm giving them a tool they can use on the field rather than I increase their back squat by five to 10 pounds. How is that? What is that giving them on the field to me? Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. And I think uh, Bobby Stroop seems to do some stuff like that as well. Like he was talking a lot about Sam Ellinger and his like pro day prep here and putting out some numbers like throwing velocity is important. That's something that we've tried to track. We have like a little radar gun for our QBs, the max distance throw, like you said. And then same thing with our kickers. Like our kicker now is is very, very good. When he came in, he was incredibly weak, not super powerful, just a small little guy who used to play soccer. He's one of the best kids on the team, just fantastic human. Uh, but he now kicking is hitting 60 yard field goals. He's like five, six, 165 pounds. Like he's a little guy who's just producing so much power, but his relative strength, his speed numbers, his vertical jump, he came in, he was jumping like 26. Now he's like 35 plus. He was trap barring next to nothing. Like he had back pain. If he front squatted, goblet squatted. So we were really, really smart in the way we progressed him. And now he's like 400 plus pound trap bar guy. Like I don't not believe in getting people strong. I just think we should do it in the right way. Same as like Michael Tucker had a post a while back because he's the like sprint timber guy. So everyone's like, oh, he just does speed work. Like, no, those dudes are really, really strong and they train really well. They can RDL, front squat, bench press uh, as much as a lot of guys out there. Just there's a bigger emphasis on what is important, keeping the goal the goal of on-field stuff. And so I, I really like your metrics there. And we've tried to do the same thing with soccer a while back where we were tracking like velocity of their kick. Like, yeah, it's not going to make you a better soccer player. Same being able to kick the ball farther as a field goal kicker might actually make you a little bit better. That is a part of it, like being able to get the distance to it. But it's the same as max velocity running. Higher max outputs equal higher, better operational outputs. If I can throw a ball 70 yards instead of 60 yards, maybe I can put it on the money a little bit 
these years because it's not me reaching for everything I've had. Uh, 90% is typically a little bit smoother than 100%. So when you increase the ceiling, you bring the, the floor up a little bit with it, which I think is super helpful. And you're tracking what's meaningful, like Zach Bacon at TCU Baseball is talking about. It's not really a KPI unless it actually improves performance on the field. So is a vertical jump a true KPI? To me, no. It's just a training metric. If they can jump higher, are they a worse football player? It shouldn't be. It should help them in some way. But there's no direct correlation between vertical jump and best football player. Same way, even speed. Like Those things are going to help. But the best training metrics are the things that actually matter on the field. And like you said, for QB, kicker, those things are a little bit easier to evaluate versus an offensive lineman, a linebacker, safety. It, it becomes really tricky to evaluate a true KPI of on-field performance. Well, that was actually going to be my next question because you've mentioned when you watch a tackler break in certain spots, um, even a quarterback or kicker, you, you see that they don't have the power, like safety, maybe not making the right read. How are you going about kind of finding the missing link for that individual athlete when you have the entire team? Is it just holistically, like, we're going to make you better athletes, we're going to do this? Or is there certain parts where, because this is something I've been working with, and I have a little bit of a, um, I am in a better situation with Yoakum strength, because I can get like five to five to 10 athletes at a time, rather than at St. Thomas, it's like 30 to the entire team depends on the day. Uh, so it's tougher with that. But where we're watching a certain guy, uh, let's say it's a three V three situation. He's phenomenal and he can keep up with everybody. He's really good at it. He understands space. He's doing it. But then you put him in a one V one situation and he's completely falling apart. And that to me is like, all right, you see the eye openers of maybe it's not so much max outputs there. Maybe it's the pressure of a one V one, or maybe it's just understanding and mirroring in a one V one situation. And you have other athletes phenomenal in the one V one and they fall apart in a three V three because they don't know how to understand space and work with their teammates. And then you do have the athletes. There's so many pieces, like you mentioned, you do have the athletes that, in both, they're just not fast enough or they're not strong enough and they're falling apart and getting beat that way. What is your process of finding those missing links with your team, with your players, and then designing a program to kind of attack some of those missing links or just expose them to some of those missing links? Yeah, so I think we, we've shared some standards recently on like speed, strength, um, power numbers for like a vertical jump. So we'll have kind of standardized metrics uh, with our training metrics where, okay, this guy's good. You know, he's uh, elite and Alex Rogeski on our staff is actually way too smart. He's like coded stuff on R. He can come up with a total athlete score. So if a person is a Z score, like essentially a standard deviation above the norm, those are your best athletes in multiple tests. Like whoever is the furthest above the norm across all the things we track would be your highest total athlete score, lowest total athlete. People in the bottom, they probably need those outputs. Like they're underperforming because they don't have those. Your people at the top, it becomes a little bit more imperative of what is the issue? Is it tactical? Is it technical? Is it psychological? Or is it very, very specific scenarios? Like you said, a guy that's good in one-on-one, -on -one, but he struggles to communicate or understand the complexity of a three versus three situation. And to us, there's not a huge chance to individualize it. Like, hey, you guys stink in this area. You guys stink in this area. Let's do that right now on the field. Um, but it's exposing them to all of it. So if we can do a lot of one-on-one -on -one situations, we can do a lot of team situations, hopefully you're rising everything to a certain degree, but I do think it helps to have the objective data, where are their weak points? And then subjectively go through the same thing, speaking with a, a sport coach, the athlete himself, your eyes, is he struggling tactically? Is he struggling technically, psychologically? 
And then physically, that's objective data. We can see that. And just trying to piece together what are the missing links. And maybe there are some things we can do. Like I've seen guys who, from an energy system development standpoint, if we have a conditioning test that we're not using as like pass fail, oh, you get to play now because you did 300 shuttles. It's, are you improving your conditioning throughout the four years? Are you getting faster? Can you repeat your sprints more effectively, et cetera? There's guys who test near the top, but they get in a game and three reps in, they're completely gassed and out of breath. And it's not from, they can crush any conditioning you throw at them. Psychologically, they are struggling and they, you know, there's so many other stressors leading to it that their heart rate's through the roof. They're struggling to focus and all of a sudden they can't breathe, not because they're in bad shape, but because psychologically they're not prepared to play the game, um, which just leads to, you know, they need more meeting time, whatever. Um, but on our side, some things we've done, like especially our advanced guys. So right now, uh, in yesterday's lift, we had a foundation card, which is very general um, and stays that way because I do like a long-term athlete development plan. Our advanced guys, all of those guys are good or elite in most areas, hopefully every area, from a strength standard, speed, et cetera. But we have kind of a radar graph that plots them by position. So in their strength-focused area, where do they stack up amongst their position? the speed focus and a power spectrum profile of loaded jumps. We can look at each area on that radar graph, see where they're at stacked up amongst their position and just their player type. If you have a huge receiver whose strength and size is his main function, let his strength stay a strength. Like if a guy is real springy and gets out of breaks quickly and he's not the strongest guy, but he's been healthy, like we don't need to go out of our way to gain strength. Like you don't have to focus on the law of the average, but so there's some nuance to it, but at the same time, objectively, we can look at that radar graph. Okay, this receiver is kind of middle of the pack on speed strength or speed stuff. He's plenty strong. Let's add a little bit more of a speed emphasis for him. He does not need more strength to be a better football player. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you might have an offensive lineman who strength is a key factor for him. He moves pretty well. He's a guy who's been packing on weight and trying to get him into a stronger, bigger body. He might need a little bit more strength emphasis, even though he's in year three or four. So our advanced card, we have a strength group, a power group, and a speed group. And it's just on Tuesdays, like their minimal viable performance stuff. And this is kind of taken from Alex too and Mladen stuff. But their minimum viable performance stuff is, hey, let's keep them healthy. But on our maximizer upside, okay, we're not going to chase strength numbers with a guy whose speed is his clear weakness and he already has strength. So his A block, for example, might be dynamic, just band resistant quarter jump squats or trap bar jumps with no weight or dumbbells really light. Like we're just trying to increase the speed side. He might be doing assisted jumps, quick ground contacts, extensive plyometrics, whatever it is. Versus our strength guy, they might be doing heavy clusters and we'll still hit some power and speed for everybody. I do believe in a vertical integration approach, but their main emphasis of their A block on the, the neural days are going to be focused on what they need the most and bringing up their rate limiting factor. And if a guy doesn't have one, typically I put them in the power group because I think you can catch both directions a little bit more effectively. And if you're already really fast for your position, you're already really strong. Let's just work that middle range, top range, bottom range and hit all three uh, and just trying to keep driving that performance up a little bit. With a given training day, then how many programs do you guys have running at the same time? Is it, is it, you have your, these are just the advanced athletes. Yeah. So like this Tuesday, 
we had four separate programs. So there's three advanced cards and then there's the foundation card. Okay. Uh, the most we'll ever get into, if we're breaking into those groups, uh, what Jordan and I, who, who was on your podcast a while ago, Jordan Newsma, for those who don't know him, we've talked about it as like year one, you're on a basic foundation card. And we have our foundation plus, which is still very general in nature. And then our advanced group that first year, just going almost position focus, like, hey, our linemen need a little bit more of this, our skill guys need a little bit more of this. And then the last year, trying to get as auto-regulated as we can. So we'll look at that radar graph. Okay, you need speed, power, or strength. And we'll do a little bit more with, like, we have a Tendo unit now. We'll have a jump pad. So our jumps might be prescribed just off the just jump. Hey, we want 50% of your best height. You find that load. On a given day, it might be different versus set prescribing a load or percentage, whatever it may be. Your trap bar work, we want at X velocity. And they kind of take ownership of their program. It's auto-regulated and it's individualized for them. That first advanced group is more, it's individualized, but it's not as individual to them. It's individual by position. Um, and it just gets a little bit more into, you know, our linemen are training different, obviously. Our outside-the-box guys are training different. And then you're still addressing some more individual needs. And it's a little bit more complex. And then that last one is you're just taking over. You're kind of in charge of your own programming from an auto-regulation standpoint. We really, really trust those guys. All they need is their individualized buckets because they're already great football players. You know, they're strong. They're fast. We're just trying to keep them as healthy as we can, bring up anything as much as we can without adding more risk to the table. With these athlete scores, have you ever experimented with kind of comparing that with a performance score? I know a lot of coaches kind of rate their players and do that. Do you ever plot those two against each other to, because I, I just, it just got me thinking that that'd be a phenomenal way to create conversation with the athlete and with the coach itself of he's plotting here on the athlete chart and plotting way down here on the performance chart of the actual metrics of practice or whatever, whatever the coach is seeing. Um, so then it's less strength, power, spending more time here and spending way more time here. Have you guys ever experimented with any of that? We haven't just because, so Alex just came up with that total athlete score within this past month here. So that's right. relatively new, but we've had our objective standards from training metric standpoint compared to like a subjective profile of, okay, this guy's a very good player. And, you know, if we're having one-on-one -on -one meetings or just conversations in the weight room conversations with their coaches and exit meetings, those are things that get brought up because like when they had their exit meetings as uh, a staff uh, coaching staff, they had all of their KPI testing. So they can see kind of where that guy stacks up. Okay. And they can bring up those things and reinforce, you know, this is what we need to improve the same way I can say, Hey, you have this, like, what do we need to do to make you better on the field? Or, Hey, I know this is kind of an area that's a weakness for you. We're going to attack it with individualized program. And I do think there's a, small placebo effect there as well when a guy hears oh this is individualized for me it, it's just buckets like there's three groups and it really doesn't take that much work or you don't have to have six coaches on the floor because oh it's all different like the meat and potatoes of the lift are very similar it's just the emphasis switches you could do the exact same movement with a different load and a different intent to it and still get a little bit of individualization from it um, but i think a guy when he hears oh i'm in a group and this working what I need, it raises that intent and like they think it's working more than it might actually be just because they feel like they're getting a really good service. 
No, I've 100% experienced that same thing. They, like, we'll do some stuff where, like, a lot of our small game, our small side of games are just split up bigs versus um, skills. And then also more recently, uh, just with the QBs and kickers, we'll have them do just, I mean, it's just tiny rotational things we'll have them add in. And as soon as you do that, it's like, oh, this program, this program's for me. Like, this is a, this is a buy-in is crazy. So I 100% on the same page there. Before we end this podcast, I'm interested now taking out a little bit of the training sector, maybe maybe there's a little bit of the training sector, but we you had those four months off of from the COVID period off, I should say, quotation. I know you're doing a lot of work. What were kind of some of the biggest eye openers for you personally training and just life-based with those four months of, because I've been talking to a lot of coaches of a lot of people had their lives, not lives flicked upside down, but just their thought process on the field, their thought process on what they're doing, the thought process on what matters during this time period that we'll probably never experience again, where you, you literally have four months off of work completely and some people way longer. What was that like for you? What were some of the lessons that you took from that? And how has that kind of helped you now when you're back and you're able to appreciate some of that? That's a really good question. Um, the biggest thing is just, it's time that I'll, I'll definitely cherish forever. I don't think it could have happened to me at a better time. We had just had our son. He was born in March. Our daughter's coming up on two years old at the time. So just a great age where our kids are home. They're not in school. Just getting to hang out with him a ton. Uh, physically, myself, I emphasize the athletes training over my own training. And in this instance, like, well, I don't have athletes to work with directly today. I'm not exhausted from coaching on the floor and running around demoing a bunch of stuff. Uh, so I think personally, I probably had some improvements in my own performances. Uh, but just being around my family, cooking every meal was fantastic uh, and just cherishing those moments. And I think it certainly helped me realize, like, I, I don't identify myself as a coach first. Like, I certainly didn't have this moment where I was like, oh, I, I could go without coaching forever. Like, I craved, like, working with athletes and helping them. Like, that's definitely what I love to do. But I wasn't lost where like, oh, I can't coach athletes. What do I do? Like, well, I get to hang out with my family. I get to enjoy my time. Like, you have to have hobbies outside of your work. I feel like if you were struggling during COVID, like, oh, I don't know what to do, that you've probably got some bigger issues that you need to tend to. Um, but really, I have no complaints. I think it was a pretty fantastic time. I think we could all use a little bit more time off and, and making sure that you structure your life to where you get time away and structuring each day to where you have time to just relax, shut off, and and not be stressed out all the time, which in the world of athletics is definitely not the norm. Yeah, that, that's freaking awesome. And I, I'm 100% on the same page there too, because that's, I mean, I feel other than like, obviously the worldwide effect COVID had, but COVID for me personally was one of the best time periods to be able to reset, get that time off, focus on some different things, take that step out of the field and do some of those things. So I really enjoy that. The, the last, last question I want to ask you, what is kind of next for you? Is it, is, is there something that you're diving into recently that you think is going to, I know you said you just got the Tendo unit. Maybe it's that, uh, maybe it's a hobby. Maybe there's something that you're diving into right now, but what's kind of the, the next thing you're looking into currently, the next thing you're really looking forward to doing, what's kind of the future looking for you when this podcast is over? Yeah. So I think this is the first time we've really dove into those individualized buckets. I think we've already had some really good success with that with our advanced guys in season. And the goal of that was just it's such a unique time where we're going to play two seasons in one year. We're not going to have a true off season. We've got to make sure we're improving and maximizing our time. So if this guy has a rate limiting factor of X, Y, or Z. Let's attack that and make sure he's still getting better during this time. So it'll be great when we get into the summer. 
and we have a little bit more opportunities to test some things. Okay, where does he stack up? Did we improve in what we thought we would? Uh, I think that will be very helpful in kind of auditing and, and iterating our process and making sure that we're continuing to refine those things. Uh, getting an actual summer with our freshmen on a true foundations block will be great. We missed that last year. Uh, and then I'd like to, like Alex's total athlete sports stuff, having some time in the summer where it's a little bit more relaxed. We don't have all 16 teams in season diving into the data and trying to make as best use of it as we can. Cause everything we've implemented at this point, we've used really well. So trying to take his skill set and apply it a little bit larger scale and he's just way smarter. So making use of the time that we have with him here. Um, and then really we don't get a true off season all the way until next January. So I'm not wishing my time away by any means, but we'll have plenty of time to come up with hopefully a great plan for, for that and get into some, some real and exciting training. Cause definitely for a performance coach, the, the real fun is definitely the off season, not the end season. Um, but I'm not exactly sure what the next step is just because we haven't had that true off season to really refine what it is we're doing. Uh, I think we had, we're really happy with our programming. We've made some small tweaks. Um, so just trying to continue to refine those things. And then uh, biggest thing for me is finally finishing my dissertation this summer. So. Ooh, okay. That, you just dropped that at the end. That's kind of like a big thing. I feel like. Yeah. It got put on hold last year because my testing required athletes is written up for uh, NCAA division one football athletes and still haven't had a chance to do it because we're in season right now. So in our July section is when I plan to, run our tests, write everything up and, and finally graduate and quit dumping time into that. That'll be fantastic. Well, awesome. Coach, I think you lived up to the hype of being the number one listened to podcast in season two. Might might do it again in season three with some of the knowledge we'll see. you dropped. We'll see. <laughs> thank you for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.